Well, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Good to see you. Welcome to Life Community. You're like, what's going on today? This is going to be, we're, we're going to do something a little bit different today. And let me just say, getting started out here, if you don't know me, my name is Tim. I have the privilege of pastoring here. I'm going to introduce you to Jim in just a minute. And to, since today's a little different, we are going to be seated. If you want to get up and move around a little bit and find a spot where you can see him, I'm not that important today, but he is. So, And he's taller, so that's good. So you can see him uh, pretty well. But uh, if you want to do that, uh, go ahead right now or uh, as we get started here. But today we're going to be finishing up the uh, book of Ephesians, and we're actually um, not going to spend a lot of time in Ephesians. We're going to, there's four closing verses from the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to read those to you to sort of set up what we're talking about, and then we're going to launch into a conversation on Jim and his life. And so um, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn on over to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we've been in Ephesians since the beginning of the summer, I think 19, 20 weeks, and so it's been, a, it's been a great journey, and here's how Paul closes this letter. So he's, he's just come off this, this time talking about spiritual warfare, the armor of God, prayer, which we talked about last week, and he's closing the letter. He says, Titus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. That's the book of Ephesians. And what I want to clue in on here today as, as we launch off of this is Paul in prison, remember he's right, he wrote this letter from prison, gets to the end of it, and he's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of encouraging the people around him. So he says, I got a great Titus. I'm going to send him to you. And he's, he's going to fill you in, but mostly he's going to encourage you. And he's, and he's going to um, spur you on in your faith. He's going to encourage you to keep following Jesus, to keep running this race. And that's what Jim's been in my life over the years. Uh, if you don't know Jim Hale, this is Jim Hale. And uh, Jim's a pastor. Uh, he's an author. In fact, uh, he's got a couple books out here. Um, on the, uh, he's got a table out here in the lobby. You can catch up with him on the way out. But uh, Jim is also very active in the community. He's kind of a, a pastor to leaders and a pastor to pastors. Um, and uh, he's really encouraged me. He uh, did my, uh, officiated our, my wife and I's wedding and our premarital counseling. And uh, also, uh, Jim has worked extensively in the Amazon with the people in Peru. And, uh, and one, one time he invited me to go. And so I was just dating my wife at the time and uh, took off. And we went down to landed in Iquitos, right? Um, in Iquitos, Peru, got on a boat and went way down the Amazon River. And I've been on some um, pretty rough missions trips in my life. And this kind of took the cake uh, in some areas. So uh, it was an adventure. We stayed in this, this uh, hotel in this little village called Cabayacocha. And uh, I kid you not, they, they, there were so many bugs down there that they mopped the floor with kerosene. <laughs> you would walk in and your feet would almost slide out from underneath you. It was so slick. And it was about 90 degrees, 90% humidity. We have one little fan between the two of us, like going back and forth between the beds. And I remember um, 
one, one night we heard this, like, we kept hearing this scratching, and we look up, and there's a hole literally right above my bed. And uh, so we try to, like, spray mosquito repellent up there because it's clearly a rodent trying to get in, like a rat trying to crawl through the ceiling right above my head. And <laughs> so this goes on for a day or two, and the hole keeps getting bigger. And I... Uh, Eventually, I'd heard you can pound nails with an Elgin water bottle, and so I thought, I'm going to try this, so I'll get, get something to nail up, and sure enough, pounded some nails, and uh, thankfully, we kept the rat out of that hotel room, but had some really incredible time of ministry down there. Then the next, uh, this is what we're going to talk about mostly today. Um, Jim used to be a, a guide on Denali, um, on Mount McKinley in Alaska. And so he asked me uh, after this trip, you want to you wanna go climb Denali with me? And it was, number one, a week after my wedding, so that wouldn't have gone over very well. <laughs> and number two, um, I'm like, I'm not a cold-weather guy, but why don't you ask my brother? And so he asked my brother, and my brother went up, and you guys spent how many days on that glacier? 26. 26 days <laughs> camped out on a glacier, and they uh, summited Denali. So I've got a cool picture of that. So why don't you give Jim a, a warm welcome here? today. Thank you. So we're going to talk about living a life of adventure, and Jim knows all about living a life of adventure, and specifically, what does that mean when it comes to living a life of adventure, of risk, of response in service to the king? And so we're just going to kind of go over his story and talk through some things and share a couple scriptures, but you came from a pretty adventurous family, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I did. My, my uh, mom and dad were early pioneers in, in Alaska. Uh, they were planning on going to uh, China as medical missionaries. Uh, but after World War II, the, the uh, communist government was killing pastors. And, and uh, so the mission board told them they might want to reconsider. And uh, they ended up in Alaska. And uh, it, my dad was the first uh, surgeon in Anchorage after World War II and ended up traveling all over the state doing a variety of things. He was also a game guide. And so uh, I ended up uh, just even as a little baby flying around in small planes and just wandering around Alaska and shooting my BB gun and doing all the different things that you do. But it was a typical Alaska adventurous life. And you, you met, you had a powerful encounter and met Jesus at, uh, you didn't grow up a believer, but you met Jesus at, uh, in your teen years, right? Yeah, I was uh, actually training for a mountain race in Seward, Alaska. Some of you folks went to Seward and and, and went fishing yeah. here a couple of summers ago with uh, with Tim. That was that was pretty cool. And in Seward, they have a, a mountain race called uh, Mount Marathon, and uh, that was uh, actually started as what I think is the earliest foot race, except for maybe the Boston Marathon in the United States. And uh, it started on a bar bet. Somebody bet somebody they couldn't get to the top of this mountain and back in an hour. And now they have on the 4th of July, they have a massive race, and it's, a, it's become a real iconic moment. I was training for that race uh, with a friend in high school. We were both probably about, he was 16, I was 15 probably. And uh, <clears throat> my life at that point in time had been become very, very chaotic. I grew up with a, a simple childlike faith, but then my brother came back from college in 1969 and 1968 in that realm. And uh, that was a pretty tumultuous time. It, it, it mirrors a lot of what's going on right now because everything was in question. All the morality was in question, the political stuff, the social stuff. Everything was being thrown up in the air. And he came back and told me that, that uh, 
there was really no purpose to life, that we were just a big cosmic accident, and he had become an angry atheist. And I adopted his philosophy because he was a very important figure in my life, with my dad being kind of a distant, distant figure. And so I adopted that angry atheism, and, and uh, I was very deeply disappointed. I was a bitter 15-year-old kid because I felt like there should be a God, but that had all been ripped out away from me. And I was upset about it. I was angry about the fact that the God that I thought should be there wasn't there. Try to figure that one out. <laughs> so in the middle of all that, I have a friend uh, who is, uh, we're sharing an apartment while we're training for this mountain race. And his name is Dan Mardock, and, and he had a, a St. Christopher's medal that on the back of it, he had stenciled with one of those vibrating pins, trust God. And I thought, I was going out of my way at the time to mock Christianity and to mock Christians. I thought they were the stupidest things on two legs. And uh, that's the way I felt. I was just a bitter 15-year-old kid. And so, uh, so I'm mocking my friend and I'm mocking his faith and you know, trying to get into an argument. And as we're going to sleep one night, and... Uh, um, I, I, I can't believe I said what I said, <laughs> but I did. And what I said was, Mardok, if your God is so real, why doesn't he just kill me right now and prove it to you? You know, all the spite in my heart was just coming out. And instead of him being combative, which he normally would have been, especially as, a, as an adolescent kid, uh, instead of being combative and coming after me, he said, hey, all I feel so sorry for you because you ha don't have any idea how much God loves you. And right at that moment, I felt the presence of Almighty God right here in my face, just right at the end of my nose, just saying, I am. Here I am. What are you going to do with me? And I had just said, if your God is so real, why doesn't he just kill me right now and prove it to you? So I'm just, my, my hair is blown back, and I'm just kind of, whoa, this is amazing. And so, <laughs> That'll get your attention, <laughs> it? <won't> it did. <laughs> it woke me right up. And so the next day, uh, Dan and another uh, young man, Andy Beechick, showed me the scripture and, and led me to Christ and helped me to make a decision to follow after the Lord. And at that point in time, my whole worldview changed. And it was one of those typical examples that, you know, we were down there for a, a mountain race. We were down there to, to, you know, challenge, you know, something in ourselves and everything else. But in the middle of all that, God shows up. And that's, that's the purpose behind adventure for us. There's a, one of my favorite quotes is a quote from Browning who said, ah, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or else what's a heaven for? And that's what we're all about. We, we know that there's something more. We know that there's something ideal. We know that there's something perfect. We know that there's justice. We know that there's love. But we just quite, can't quite grab a hold of it yet. We've got it in Christ. We've got that hope. But we've got something in heaven that's out there in front of us. And so we reach out for the, the things that are more. And that's what the adventure is all about. And when we do that, God shows up. So early on in your, in your journey as following Jesus, you really had a setback that really illustrates the power of words and the things we say to other people. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was, life had changed for me completely. I really did go from darkness to light. I went from despair and, and that whole sense of hopelessness and, and nihilism into a place of all of a sudden God's real. He's alive uh, and, he's, and he knows me. And I, there's, you know, we can have a relationship. And I'm like, oh, I'm just so excited in my born-again experience. But I came out of that summer <clears throat> with really no foundation because I didn't have a Bible. I didn't really know anything about it. You know, the only Bible in our family was one of these monster ceremonial things about as big as this table, and you know, nobody ever really paid much attention to it. 
And uh, so I, d- I had no foundation, and my friends really didn't help me. They, I didn't get any discipleship. I didn't get any training. And I didn't really know what to do except for just be marveling in the reality of Almighty God showing up in my life. And so with that faith, I walked into uh, high school in Anchorage, Alaska, um, and we were talking in a social studies class about some social problem. And I raised my hand, and I asked the teacher, I said, doesn't the Bible have something to say about that? And I didn't know. I just assumed that it did. Um, but I, I really, truly didn't know. So I'm legitimately asking an honest question. Doesn't the Bible have something to say about that? Well, uh, what the teacher said was, is, well, Mr. Hale, I've read the Bible. Uh, there's really nothing to it. It's just a good book. And because I respected this teacher, I respected his position, he had treated us with respect, he was a highly popular teacher, again, I had my foundation ripped right out from underneath me. So I had my relationship with the Lord, but all of a sudden the Bible was just torn right out from underneath me. And I started to wander. Mm -hmm. And I started to wander through the late 60s and 1970s with all the excesses that were out there, all the drugs and the sex and the, you know, all the other things. I still had my relationship with the Lord, but I was experimenting and adventuring in the wrong directions. Mm -hmm. And it took me years to recover from those things. And at this point in time, I've actually shared uh, my book with that teacher, and and I've actually had a chance to minister the gospel to him a couple of times. I'm still praying for his salvation. He's still still alive up in his 80s and 90s now. Yep. (laughs) It reminds me of the scripture that Solomon penned that says, the tongue has the power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Just understanding how powerful the words are we speak and encouraging others and either propelling them towards Jesus or potentially Mm -hmm. sidetracking. That's right. right. That's right. Very, very powerful. Now, you found yourself a few years later, your priorities had completely shifted. You became all about success in an emerging uh, industry of adventure travel. And you found yourself living with a young lady, kind of in a different place in life, still Knowing God was there, but pretty disconnected at that point, right? Oh, yeah. We were, we were wandering in that fog of spirituality. And my wife at the time was my girlfriend at the time. We were living together. We really didn't understand any of the morality aspects. You know, we're, we're born with meaning in our lives and, and purpose, morality, and destiny, all because of the Lord. It's all because of our relationship with God that we have those things. But we didn't really have those things clearly laid out in our life. Uh, her family was really a wreck with multiple divorces and multiple relationships. And, you know, it was, if you were around during that time, it was a Peyton Place type scenario, if you remember the old, the old story, uh, the old, old TV series. Um, it was really messy. And uh, so we had a lot of confusion in the sense of what was really the right thing to do and, and in the sense of, of, of marriage. <clears throat> And at the same time, God's developing in our lives. And we really didn't understand fully how it was happening, but I ended up uh, developing my own mountain guide service on Denali. And that picture there in the back, just a little reference there on that. Denali is the largest mountain in the world from base to summit. Uh, the picture here is taken from 320 feet. The top is about 20,320 feet. So it is an extremely large mountain from uh, base to summit. And it draws people from all over the world. And the Lord just worked it out very, very quickly. And so at 22 years old, I'm running my own mountain guide service uh, on, on Denali in 1976. And uh, 
um, you know, one of the early mountain guides there. We ha carried hang gliders to the top of Mount McKinley and, and uh, had four pilots fly off of the mountain uh, there in 1976, which is just an amazing thing. But God was really at work in all those different settings. And, and we're coming out of New Age spirituality. We're coming out of questionings and wonderings. And the Lord just started to make himself known. And especially my wife developed a real desire for the Lord and a real hunger for the Bible. And then the Bible started coming into our lives. And I was really, really hungry to be able to read and know and understand because I could see the effects of it in my wife. I could see that she was really finding that whole sense of meaning and purpose and value in life. But it was blocked to me. Uh, all of this confusion and all of the stuff had left me really mistrustful. So I had a problem with trust. And I was invited to a church in Anchorage, Alaska, and, and I was, I'd heard things about that church, that it was just a weird place and that people were hypnotized and all that. There's all kinds of stuff out there. And so I walked into the church ready to run. Re re if I saw any weirdness at all, I was going to be out the door like that. And that, all I found was people like you. I found people who loved the Lord and loved each other. And it was just a simple, pure, truthful, free place. It won my heart. And when, when that trust got healed in my life, all of a sudden the Bible opened up to me where before I couldn't really read it. It didn't make sense. I couldn't connect with it. It was like reading a foreign language. And when God healed that place in my heart and, that, and helped me to find a church family, what happened was is all of a sudden the scriptures opened up and that life started to pour in and, and you know, I haven't looked back on that. And one of the first things that you felt was a step of obedience um, to Jesus was actually Getting married, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But you know, once, when you're when you're working in a moral fog, and that's basically what's happening in the culture around us today, is there's just a big moral fog. When you're coming out of that something, and God starts to speak to you clearly, it's just like a cup of cold water in the desert. <clears throat> and so for us, all of a sudden, the Bible is there, the truth of the Word is there, uh, the, our examples are there, our pastor is leading us, we're getting discipled, and all of a sudden we see. That that's God's plan for us, not our family expectation or a social piece of paper or whatever else, but it was God's plan for us to enter into a covenant marriage relationship. Mm -hmm. And that was my first conscious obedient act in, in following after Christ. Yeah. Was, I remember driving down the road and talking to Ronnie and saying, <clears throat> you know, Ronnie, I know why we're getting married. God wants us to get married. Just, for some reason, that was cosmic to me. It was very, very real. Yeah. By the way, my wife and I just celebrated our 47th wedding yeah. anniversary. She's not with us here today. She's, she's at home, but uh, um, it, it stuck. That's awesome. <laughs> now, you had an experience up on that peak, up on Denali, that really <clears throat> changed your life. In the midst of sort of that worldly vision, God began to shift things, and actually there was a moment of dying to yourself in, in, a, in a sense. And so um, you want to read the Exodus passage and kind of set up yeah, sure. um, the conversation yeah, there's a, there's a about scripture the scripture in Exodus 3 <clears throat> where Moses is curious and climbs this mountain to see the burning bush. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God, <clears throat> God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. 
Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I, then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, <clears throat> and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. There's a principle here. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that principle is that Moses was curious. God showed him something, drew his attention. Moses said, that's curious. That's interesting. I think I'll go check that out. And when God saw that Moses' adventurous spirit was, was piqued to come up and, and climb that mountain and look and see what was going on there, then he spoke to him. And God does these things for us, and that's these stories that I'm sharing with you are very much that, that God puts something out in front of you that just says, here I am, look at that. And when we, when we step into looking and, and seeking in that sense, then God sees that we're ready to, to learn, we're ready to listen, we're ready to hear, and that's when he shows up. I think that's one of the primary um, benefits of pulling away, of adventure, of getting away, even just silence and solitude as you actually are paying attention and you're putting yourself in an environment where you um, notice the burning bush. You don't just, you're not just mm -hmm. so busy blazing through yeah. life that, that you miss those, those moments when God's trying to get your attention. Absolutely. How many of you like to hunt? Uh, you know, I, th I think I was up in the Cimarron Forks area here this last week with my grandson and his uh, girlfriend from Hawaii, and it was just glorious. It was absolutely beautiful, and we had the storms, and we had beautiful wet, clear weather, too, and we had you know all the beautiful nature and all the other things that are out there. And that thought really crossed my mind, just what you just said, was I think the reason why people like to hunt so much is because there's this intense quiet and there's this intense listening. And so you're listening for that snap of a branch or a bugle of an elk or whatever that may be. And there's that place where you're reaching out farther than just your, your normal everyday existence of busyness. So what happened on Denali that changed your life? Now, this is what, Tim, this is one of those areas where God has given me these different experiences. And I think the reason why he's given me these experiences is because my own faith was weak. My own, my own sense of self was really insecure. Uh, and so you don't necessarily have to have all these, these grand experiences. In fact, the people who serve the Lord without those experiences, I think, are to be commended for their faith way more than, than somebody like me from going through these things. So these are kind of things that just happened to me. God just intervened. So in this particular climb here, and we're looking at the Denali West Buttress slide here in a, in a minute that's going to show you uh, that picture right there. That's the upper 10,000 feet of, of Denali or Mount McKinley right now on the West Buttress route. That's the ridge on the left side of the picture. And so in 1978, I was climbing with a team of people, and uh, we had 10 clients and two, two guides, and my co-guide, a man named Bruce Hickok, broke a bone in his foot a couple of days out of base camp. And on this particular mountain, you fly in with ski planes to the glacier, and then you have uh, an actual 18-mile route that you go up this, this mountain and 13,000 vertical feet of climbing in a high glacial, very cold weather situations. I've actually seen 50 below zero in June. Uh, up high on the mountain there. That's why I and didn't go, my brother. Did. <laughs> it can, it's, it's very, very high and very cold. And uh, to set the stage a little bit, people who have climbed in the Himalayas and Mount Everest area have said that the, the effect of climbing at a northern uh, latitude, on, like on Denali, it actually feels more like 23 or 24,000 feet because the Earth's atmosphere thins at the poles and it's thicker at the equator. 
And so the midpoint of the atmosphere in, on Everest is about 19,000 feet, and 50% atmosphere oxygen on Denali is 16,000 feet. So it actually affects you very, very differently. So it's very so, dangerous. You're up, you're, getting, you're approaching that area where nothing lives. Bacteria don't live. There's nothing you see in the sense of animal life. Um, there's no things like body odor or tooth decay because of bacteria. It's just yeah. they don't live and, up there. And people do this for fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> because it's there. <laughs> because it's there. <laughs> so, so because it's there, we're taking off on this expedition. And uh, I should have known something was up when the whole expedition began with a miracle. But uh, Bruce broke that bone in his foot. We had two doctors on the team that both said that that's what they believed that that was. We didn't have an x-ray machine, obviously, but that's, that was their opinion. And I had, had been prayed for before and had had a healing in my, in my shoulder. And I, I knew that God was putting one of those moments out there in front of me that I had to respond to. I really didn't have any great faith that anything was going to happen, but I knew that I could not pray. I, it was just out there in front of it. My friend was hurt. It was a serious situation. I wanted him to be okay, but I needed him on the climb. And then on top of it, we were going to have to stick him on a sled and haul him a couple of days back to base camp. And it was going to deeply interfere with our whole goals of being able to climb the mountain. And so there were a lot of different motivations there. But I asked Bruce <laughs> if I could pray for him. And he, he came out of a really broken family with a violent alcoholic dad. And he didn't have any faith at all. In fact, his faith was like down here. I mean, my faith was just sort of mid-grade. I mean, I really didn't have any great faith that anything was going to happen. I wasn't assured of anything. And he had totally negative faith. And so I asked him, you know, Bruce, can I pray for you? And he just snarled at me and just said, well, yeah, if it'll make you feel better. <clears throat> you know, so he, he, was, you know, he, had, he had like not zero faith, negative faith. So I get him in a tent, a little dome tent. And we're, we're sitting there next to each other like this. And, and uh, I've got my hands on his foot. And I just prayed a really simple prayer. I just said, Lord, Bruce is hurt, and he needs your help. Would you please heal him? And, and right at that moment, I looked up at his face, which is right about right here in this situation, and he's just, he got instantly healed. And so he jumps up. He runs out of the tent like Daffy Duck hoot, hooting and hollering in a cartoon. He picks people up, and he's throwing them in the snowbank. It's really one of those dancing and leaping and praising God, healing the lame man kind of moments. Yeah. And so, and it was just and out there in front of everybody. But the thing that was so interesting about it was is that even though we had two doctors on the trip that saw that very thing, nobody ever talked about that. I mean, there was a miracle of healing right there. <laughs> and we just kept going. And then so later on, we're up on the mountain much higher, and, and uh, to make a better, uh, long story short, we had multiple rescues of other team people, other people from uh, Germany and other places where suddenly they were right next to us with a broken ankle or something like that, and we had to sled them down to a spot where they could be flown out. And uh, we were yo-yoing up and down the mountain with these rescues, and I started getting sick. Uh, one of the people on the team had come on the expedition with a cold, and I started to develop an, an uh, upper respiratory viral type thing myself with a deep cough. <clears throat> and I started to, uh, started to spit blood, which is never a good thing. Blood is really significant, but it's more significant when it's your own. And so, so when, you're spitting, when you're spitting bright red blood on the bright white snow, it, it's a real contrast. And so uh, I wasn't really ill particularly, I just had those symptoms. 
And we just kept going up and down and doing these different things. And so at the very last stage, we're on the upper part of that ridge heading up to that pass that you see between the two peaks called Denali Pass. And we're moving a camp up to that area there. And all of a sudden, one of our team develops advanced pulmonary edema. He's breathing bloody brown foam. And he's very close to death. And this was a marathon runner. This was a guy who was really fit. And part of the scenario was, I think, he knew how to suffer. He knew how to handle pain. And he didn't, wasn't telling us what was going on. Even when we were asking him if he was OK, he wasn't being honest about how he really felt. So suddenly, we have an invalid on our hands. And it, but I have my co-guide. And so my co-guide and I and one of the team doctors literally haul him down that ridge uh, down to a lower altitudes. And he started to recover pretty quickly. And then by the time we got him down to the lower part of that photo, uh, he was actually walking on his own and able to get by. But then we had to go back up. Uh, so Bruce and and, uh, the, and Larry, the guy who was sick, went out with some other friends of mine that had come up the mountain to meet them. And so they went out to, to make sure that Larry was going to be OK. And then uh, Frank, the doctor, Dr. Hollingshead, and I went up, started climbing back up the mountain. And we were utterly exhausted. Uh, and I especially was utterly exhausted, still sick, still coughing, still spitting blood. Um, and we get to about halfway up that ridge to a place about 16,000 feet. And we're in a tent trying to melt snow and ice to make some soup or make some food. And uh, I can't take another step. I'm just absolutely, utterly exhausted. I'm at the end of myself completely. And so we're there, you know, cooking up this stuff. And all of a sudden, I hear this little still small voice that says, Jim, you're not going to make it off the mountain alive. And, I, and, I, and it, it impacted me in a huge way. I felt like that was the voice of God, and it very much turned out to be so. And I just mumbled to Dr. Holling, said, I'll be right back. And, and I stumbled out of the tent, just kind of pondering what in the world was all that about. And I, and I, I believe that God was telling me that I wasn't going to make it off the mountain alive, that my, my teammates were all up in this Denali Pass area between the two peaks there in that photo. And now a high mountain storm had come in. And the storm was just raging. And you could hear it blowing uh, like freight train up above. And I knew that I could go down and try to save my life, essentially, like you know, get, go down to a lower altitude. And, but my responsibility was up above. That's where my people were. And so something happened right there. And I just said, OK, let's go. Whatever you want to do, Lord, I'm yours. That's kind of a bride relationship. Better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness or health, here I am. I belong to you. Let's go. And so I said my goodbyes to Ronnie, who was off at Anchorage a few, couple hundred miles away, and, and just said, OK, let's go. And we started, we started going up. And something most incredible happened right at that point. At that point, I felt strength that I knew was not my own. And all of a sudden, I am not weary. I'm not tired. I'm not anxious. I'm at, totally at peace. Just even mildly pondering how, the, you know, Denali has a dozen ways to kill you. And so there's a lot of different things that can happen to you. Things can fall on you or you can fall in holes or fall off of ridges or whatever. There's a lot of things that can happen. But there was just this mild curiosity. I wasn't worried. I, I felt this great, great peace. And I'm walking in this strength, this grace of God to just do these things. And <clears throat> went up and found, <clears throat> excuse me, found our, our team in this ground blizzard storm up at 18,000 feet. We actually couldn't find them. 
uh, we get into this pass area and the wind was blowing so hard that you had to actually just get right in the other person's ear and yell to be, un to be heard. Or if you turned sideways to the wind, it would actually suck the air right out of your lungs. It was extreme wind and then ground blizzard snow. And so we had a Horton Here's the Who moment there. We, we, t we, we were about to dig in and just try to survive it, but then uh, we just yelled at the top of our lungs and we heard this little peep from downwind. And uh, it was our, our team all yelling at the same time, like Horton Here's the Who. <laughs> and, uh, and they were only 300 feet away. They're from here, here to the sign, basically, you know, the exit sign. They were just that far away, but <clears throat> we couldn't see them. So we survived a storm, a mountain storm there for three days, and then we had a, just a little bit of a window of opportunity to get down, started to descend the mountain on the other side, got down through some tough terrain, and then the, this, another storm came in, and no one moved on the upper mountain for two weeks. And during that time, we, we <clears throat> went out to a lower elevation. And, and this whole time, you're feeling like this supernatural strength that isn't from you. Absolutely. Days. All the way. Yeah. A, week. a I walked, week. I walked in that supernatural strength for a week. And then when we got to the end of the trail and we're waiting to try to get out because the storm had been so bad it had washed the road out. And so we had to work with the National Park Rangers and stuff to get us out of there. Uh, but when that happened, another guide had come along, a friend of mine, and had taken care of the team. And I just collapsed. And I, I got very, very sick. And uh, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't walk, I couldn't uh, laugh, I couldn't do anything without feeling like my lungs were going to come out my throat from the coughing and other things like that. And as a young man, I felt like maybe my life was over when it came to adventuring or doing anything like that. I gave away all my other guiding obligations to, to other guides, and, and I just sat for about a month wondering what my future was going to be. And at the same time, I've got this awareness of the strength and the power and the grace of God at the same, all at the same time, his strength and my weakness. So I go up to this little church in Talkeetna, Alaska, a little village where the jumping off spot for the expeditions are. I ended up pastoring that church a few years later. Um, and at the end of the service, I went up for prayer and I was wearing a thick flannel shirt. And I remember when Pastor Stewart put his hand on my chest and prayed for me. I felt this incredible, deep, penetrating heat, and I was healed right there. So this whole expedition started and began with the healing miracles for Bruce and then for me. And it left me with a completely different worldview, again, a different level of relationship with the Lord. You know, all because we're out there adventuring, and God just opens the door and saying, you know, here I am. I'm, I am that I am. I'm the God of your healing. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of your mother's love. I'm the God of your grandfather's prayers. That's me. And so I'm, I'm just thinking, what do I do with this? Yeah. And there was that, what he told you, you weren't coming off that mountain alive. You came down a different person. Yeah. You know, what, what actually died there was my self-centered pride. Because I had a young man's strength. I was an endurance athlete. I was a good runner and various other things like that. And I depended on that strength a lot. But God took me to the end of that. And that, essentially, pride died there on the mountain. And all of a sudden, I was realizing that he is my life. And then the big question is, is now what? Now what? And, and in that process, actually, God used a tragic circumstance to reroute your life into vocational ministry, right? Yes. Now, shortly after that, um, my brother and his wife and an unborn child were killed in a plane crash on Baranoff Island in, so in south, uh, southeast Alaska. And it was, it was uh, you know, we had, Ronnie and I had 
started to raise a young family. We had their first child and the first two children, actually first child at that point. And, all, and <clears throat> I was hungry to know God. I wanted, you know, it's like Philippians 3.10 talks about, I want to know God and I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing with him and his sufferings, be made like him in his death and somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead and find that particular thing that he's called me to do. And so I'm at, I'm at church, <clears throat> you know, very much in a setting like this. I'm in pre-service prayer, and I'm just crying out to God, God, I want to hear your voice. I want to hear your voice. And all of a sudden, I heard his voice, and it scared me. <laughs> I heard that, and it wasn't something the other people in the room heard. It was just something in my own spirit. And I heard him say, Jim, I'm going to have you give a message for me in, in the service this morning. And I and just, I, I was terrified. I started going through all the checklists, and Lord, is this me, or am I just making this up, or is this something I'm due to be seen? You know, so going through all these evaluation things that are just literally driving me crazy. And so I finally came to a spot of just saying, okay, God, I can't do this. I can't go through these mental gymnastics here. I'm going to have to just let this go and let you do whatever you want to do. I will do what you want me to do, but I have to quit thinking about it. So I come out of the prayer room just at peace, and then finally, there's a time for spiritual gifts, people sharing, excuse me, people sharing scriptures or, or other things. And all of a sudden, I'm on my feet, and I'm speaking for God in that setting, and it was really well received. And, and I sat down and realizing, wow, that was really God. And that, that in itself was quite a moment. But Ronnie and I, after church, went to our little house in Talkeetna and got the phone call that my brother and his wife uh, had been killed uh, in that plane crash. My dad was down in Sitka identifying the bodies, and my mom was distraught on the phone. She was in Anchorage about uh, two and a half, three hours away. And, and I said, okay, we'll be right there. And Ronnie and I are just in tears. We're just shocked in the emotion of the moment because I, you know, I loved my brother and his wife. and They were having a baby, and everything was just really wonderful. They were developing a wilderness lodge, and it was just really... It was a horrible shock. And so we're just distraught, and we're just weeping. And I said to Ronnie, let's pray. And when we prayed and gave that to the Lord, we felt his, uh, like a warm blanket around us. We felt this incredible peace and comfort that came from the Lord. So I then went and got in the car to go talk to my sister, who didn't have a phone. She lived in the village, too, but didn't have a telephone. And right as I'm drawing out the driveway, I hear that same voice that says, I'm going to have you do the memorial services. And, I, and I, even though I had not very limited public speaking and I was terrified of public speaking, um, I said, okay, because I knew that was God. And then we go to Anchorage and my family is just wrecked and I'm trying to run interference and answer the phone calls and answer the door and do the different things for my parents. And, and then my mom says, how, how are we going to do the memorial services? And I said, I'll do them. And they said, okay. And God did the most amazing thing, Tim. There were three different settings where we did the memorial services. One was in La Grande, Oregon, with the Greek family. My, my brother's wife was Dina Chacho. She was Greek. And one was in Juneau, Alaska, with my brother's friends. And they were all adventurers and kayakers and people like that that I, I related to. And the, the, the three began right there. And that was easy for me because these were people that I... They were peers. They were people I could relate to. But the second one was at the First Presbyterian Church on the Park Strip in Anchorage, Alaska, a big rock-faced stained glass church, traditional and all these other things. And I'm, I'm, having, I'm sharing the gospel with 
mayors and doctors and pastors and people who are other pioneer uh, professionals that were my parents' friends in a completely different environment. And I'm up there speaking to them in, in a situation that's absolutely foreign to me. But what happened was is God showed up and it ended up being a three and a half hour memorial service just filled with stories and laughter and tears. It was just the most amazing and wonderful thing. And then we go to La Grande, Oregon, <laughs> and I don't know these people, and so I'm going to Eastern Oregon to, to minister to a bunch of ranchers and, and loggers and, and uh, come from a completely different culture, and we love their daughter, but I, but I didn't know them at all. And I'm pacing back and forth because I don't know what to do. And, you know, I mean, I literally don't know what to do. I'm still like that every time I minister. I'm always saying, God, you're going to have to show me what to do because I don't know what to do. <laughs> and so, but in that setting, I was just really con concerned about, you know, wanting to do this properly. And my wife, Ronnie, came up and, and handed me a pen and ink drawing of John and Dina. Uh, and it said, John and Dina Hale, now with their children in heaven. And it just crushed me. And I start to weep, and I just start to pour out all this emotion, and I've just loosened it entirely. And then I have to walk over into this little forest glade and minister to this family, and I can't control my emotions at all. I can't even get through a sentence without sobbing. And so I'm, I'm sharing at this memorial service with this family in, in this beautiful little setting in this Aspen glade. And I'm thinking in the back of my head while I'm sharing is that this is a total disaster. <laughs> I mean, this is horrible. I can't, I can't figure how this is going to end up right at all. And what happened was is that the Greeks loved that. The fact that we were emotional and we loved their daughter to the point of, of expressing that pain and that grief was what they needed to see. I didn't know that. God just slaughtered me so that I could be that. <laughs> and, so, and so at the end of that, I saw that the Lord had allowed me to, to function in three completely different expressions in three different settings. And again, I knew that it was all about him and not about me because I didn't know what I was doing, but he obviously did. I just want to point out real quick um, that I, I think that example is such a good example of why it's so important to take the small yeses in following God. Absolutely. So sometimes he asks you to do something a little intimidating. Hey, pray for that person over there. And uh, you just like, you know, your mouth gets dry and you're freaked out and terrified. But it's so important to take those to say yes and to obey and respond to the Holy Spirit in those moments um, in, in the moment where he said, hey, speak out, because that ended up leapfrogging to those services, which ended up um, bringing you into, into a different direction in life of vocational ministry. Mm -hmm. um, you were going to have to compress a lot of years short in a short period of time here. Um, but basically, God called you out of Alaska. He called you down into the Grand Valley and um, changed a lot of things. But all along the way, it's been an adventure. Oh, and you've been adventuring ever since. He still runs triathlons uh, with his grandkids. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm turning 70 here in a couple of weeks, and my goal with my family is to do an Ironman at the end of October in California. <laughs> so I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. the biggest yeah. adventure has been risk. It's been just responding in service to the king, right? right? And that's the key in all of these things is just respond to the Lord when those opportunities come. Say, yeah. Have that yes in your heart. Surrender to whatever it is the Lord's giving you. Step out with some trust and God's going to show up and do the remarkable. Yep. Yeah. Now there was, I think as we 
as we bring this towards a close, um, there's a really cool story I remember you telling from uh, um, where the, of a rock slide. Oh, let's, yeah. Let's oh, yeah. close with that. Uh, the Chigmet Mountain slide, if you've got that one, you can put that up. Uh, Ronnie and I were traveling with these people here in the Chigmet Mountains, and we were guiding them in an exploration of this area that was pretty much an unexplored area of Alaska, and there's, there's no reference to any people ever having done any climbing in that area. And we were looking for new areas to be doing climbing schools and expedition schools, that sort of a thing. And so as, as we're traveling in this area, you can see on the other side of the glacier there, there's a big rock face. And at the end of the day, when things started to cool down uh, and the rock started to freeze in, uh, we were going to come down that slope right underneath that rock face back down to the glacier where our camp was. And that made sense. And we'd been in the area for about a week and we hadn't heard any major rock fall. And so we were really thinking it was very risky that it was actually going to be okay. But as we were traversing that slope in the dark, you know, pretty much like this right here where you're not able to really see what's up above you, um, all of a sudden this tremendous rockfall comes off and we can't see it, but we can hear it like a big roar of thunder. We knew that there was something huge coming down that mountain, but we didn't know where it was going. And, uh, you can see in that photo that there's some evidence of rockfall on the snow underneath that. Um, and so it, obviously some things had happened before, but. We had, what are we going to do? You know, you're all roped together. You've got four people on one rope. You've got ice axes and crampons and packs. And in that moment, all of a sudden, you've got this shocking reality that something is happening, but you don't even really know what. You just know that, what in general, but you don't know where it's going. You don't know what to do. You don't know if you should run. And if you're going to run, you've got four people tied to a rope together. And how are you going to do that? And it just it was paralyzing. It's just the shock of the trauma of the moment was just utterly paralyzing. And in that moment, uh, I can just again tell you that I was not confident. I was scared to death. I was overwhelmed in the moment and wondering what to do. And God took control, and he spoke words through my mouth that I didn't think with my head. That's the only way I can describe it. I did not think these words. But these strong, commanding words came out of my mouth that says, stand and watch. And so we just turned up slope and waited. And, and watched, and uh, huge rocks, you know, 200-pound-plus rocks coming right at us and blowing snow and ice up in the air, and little rocks coming by so fast that they're whirring and <laughs> kind of sound, and, and every single one of those things passed between us. We were right in the middle of the bowling alley, and it, they all passed right between us. The only time anyone had to move was when Mark and Margaret on this particular picture moved close together so their rope would drop and a big rock wouldn't snag the rope and pull us down the slope. It was such a holy ground moment that uh, we, didn't, we never talked about it. I never really actually even recounted this until I started to write the book. And then I had to go ask the questions to everybody. Do you remember this the same way I do? And yeah, sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And in all that, I found moments that we've gone through and, you know, there's been so much turmoil over the last years. There's been a lot of different things that have happened, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety. There have been moments that I've been still just petrified and sitting in my prayer chair at home and just kind of going, okay, what? <laughs> and there have <laughs> and been a lot of moments where the adventure looked a lot different 
Oh, not yeah. so adventurous always. No, it's caring yeah, so, oh, for gosh, those who need some, care. Sometimes it's just a matter of responsibility, but still, yeah. it's, that can be overwhelming. Yeah. And in those moments, I've had God remind me of this over and over again, this particular rockfall moment. To, as a reminder, I am that. I am. I'm the, I'm the God of that experience. Don't forget me. Stand and watch. Because that's what he wants us to do. We can't figure these things out. There's so many things we're dealing with in our life that really belong to God. And we've really got to let go and let him be God in these situations. Hmm. I think that's such a good word. Uh, I, I know, you know, over recent years through, um, you know, it, your wife having multiple surgeries for her back and different mm-hmm. things like that, mm-hmm. you've, the adventure has looked a lot like just being faithful <laughs> in moments and caring and it's not always glamorous. And I think that's where, that's the reality of life. It's, you know, changing another diaper yeah, <laughs> in that absolutely. season. It's, yeah. it's showing up in, in the life of your loved ones. It's having another conversation and, and um, just being there yeah. over and over. And I think it's in that faithfulness that then you begin to have these moments. Because these, these are the dramatic yes. moments, but they're the moments that, that set the direction that that are like anchor points for all those moments that aren't like this, right? Yeah. Just as an example, when I was a young father, uh, my son Jonathan was really, really sick. Um, and um, uh, we were living in the village. We didn't have any medical people there. The, the, actually, the pastor was everything in this village. And so there was no, uh, there were no emergency services. There was no law enforcement. There was no anything. And so if somebody had to talk down a, a violent drunk in the bar, they'd call the pastor. <laughs> and so that was my existence at the time in, in the early t- uh, 1980s in Talkeetna. But my little son, Jonathan, who was probably about oh, a year and a half years old, is very, very sick. And, and uh, a very high fever and, and earaches and various, you know, typical little kid things. And my heart was just torn up for him. And as I'm, as I'm just ministering to him and trying to pray for him and comfort him, I felt again God speak to me and he said, that's how I feel about you. And so in those moments, sometimes the adventure, sometimes the risk in, in service to the king is stepping in to care for that person that, you know, you may be ministering to someone who's going to die. What do you do? Well, some people would run, but not us. We're not going to run. We're not going to be people who are going to shrink back. We're going to be people who are going to step in. And when we step in, uh, when God sees that we're willing to step in, that's when he shows up and does the miracle. In that particular instance, I was praying for my son and praying and praying and praying and just kind of really agonizing over him. And at the same thing, God showed up and spoke through me commanding words. And it said, he said, get out. And boom, I felt him cool under my hand. I felt the fever leave because God showed up. But, but if, I had, if I had been running from that responsibility or running from the pain of that moment, instead of stepping into it, I would have missed the whole thing. We're going to put Philippians up. Why don't, you, sir, why don't you close with that? And then we're going to have a moment of prayer here. Okay. Winston, would you come up? Uh, Philippians 3, 10 through 12, the Apostle Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
So in knowing him and experiencing him, that's the primary value of adventure. That's what response and service to the king does. As we respond, he op- it opens the door to the grace and the miraculous power of God. Mm-hmm. So I think how I want to close this morning, Winston's just going to play for a minute, and uh, I just going to want to have Jim pray over you. Uh, but as, as we just let, why don't we just bow our heads? You know the real adventure. There, like the, there's something I think, especially in the heart of guys. It's it's a good thing to pursue adventure. Absolutely. Just don't let it, don't let it sidetrack you from the real adventure. Let it lead you into the real adventure, which is serving our King. And in the midst of that, be listening to His voice on how He wants to use you, how He wants to use your life. But as we close today, I just uh, as we bow our heads and close our eyes, I I just want to have a moment of prayer that I know. There's some of you that are carrying something right now that feels a little bit like a landslide coming down the mountain toward you. That you're carrying something that feels pretty heavy. And you need to hear those words, stand and watch. What the Lord's going to do in the situation. Maybe that's uh, somebody in your family that, that you're just grieving over right now. Maybe that's a health thing you've got going on. Maybe that's a challenge you've got in your finances or in your business. Somebody in your life who doesn't yet know Jesus. And so if you've got any any kind of situation like that, I'm just going to ask you, just slip up your hand real quick. We want to pray for you. Just slip up your hand. Okay. I'm just going to ask Jim to, to, to close by praying a prayer over each one that has one of those circumstances right now. Would you do that? Yeah. Lord, we want to know you. And in the knowing, we want to experience you, not just with our head, but with our heart and with our life. Lord, you're the God of our experiences. You're the God of our creation. You're the God of our redemption. You're the God who restores, the God who heals, the God who encourages, the God who comforts. Lord, we honor you. It's all about you, and it's all for you. And you are the way, the truth, and the life for us in every situation. So, Lord, I pray for those who are facing overwhelming situations where they do not know what to do. Father, I pray, Lord, that that as they stand and as they watch and as they place their affection and their hope on you, Lord, that you're going to do those miraculous things that you've done for me in my life. I know that you're not a respecter of persons, Lord. If you did it for me, God, you're going to do it for all of us because you love us the same way. So, Lord, we invite your power. We invite your grace. We invite your provision. We invite your comfort. We invite your Holy Spirit, Lord, to come and to comfort and encourage and strengthen us in the name of Jesus. Lord, let your spirit touch every single person and grant them courage, Lord, to respond to you in the midst of whatever situation there is, Lord God, that we would have courage not to run from the overwhelming circumstance, but to run to you. And I thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. We trust in your unfailing love. Lord, we bless each and every one here by faith in the name of Jesus and just release your comforting presence the power of your presence and the presence of your power 
into their lives, Lord God, that they might be strong for you in whatever position you've placed them in. All to your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.